we all experience loss, whether it's when a loved one dies, a job is lost, a marriage ends, a house burns down, a loss of a pregnancy, a nest egg, our beloved pet dies, or when anyone or anything that we loved is no longer in our lives. We joyfully anticipate the birth of a baby and spending time reading books, taking classes, preparing a nursery, and attending baby showers. But when loss occurs, we're generally unprepared. But just like birth, the more we prepare for loss, the easier it will be to go through the process and everything that surrounds us. Unfortunately, we don't usually make any preparations for the reality of loss. Many of us ignore it, or we just assume loss won't happen to us, so that when loss occurs, we tend to be totally unprepared. Most of us live in some state of denial until loss actually occurs, then we're lost. Immediately, our whole world stands still as we try to absorb what's happened, and at the same time, not being able to be sure of how we can begin to live again. I know what this poignant moment of loss feels like from my own personal experiences of losing many loved ones and dealing with other kinds of losses over the years. These experiences have led me to becoming a guide for others who need support on their journey as they start to live again and become open to loving again. In reflecting back on my life, my calling and purpose seemed to appear early in my youth. When I was 14 years old, I started going on ambulance calls when my family acquired an ambulance company. Back in the day, it was permissible for a 14-year-old to go on ambulance calls. So I went on those calls where crisis and death was a frequent experience. Later, I became a licensed vocational nurse, where I also often dealt with crisis and dying patients and their families. My parents, all of my aunts and uncles, my sister, my brother-in-law, and many friends have all transitioned. These experiences taught me of the inevitability of crisis and death, including my own. Perhaps most difficult losses that I've experienced were the death of two wonderful husbands, I had two very different experiences with grieving them. When I married Jacques, a man 21 years older than me, my friends questioned my decision, pointing out what I was in for. Of course I ignored their advice, because we were so happy and in love. We had a marvelous five years before his health started to fall apart. First, he was diagnosed with diabetes. Then he had coronary artery bypass surgery, where they did seven bypass grafts. I didn't even know that there were that many places to bypass. The surgery truly gave him a fresh start. He lost weight, stopped having to take insulin injections, went to cardiac rehabilitation, and went for regular walks, where he actually stopped to smell the roses. Joy came back into our lives. He was a college professor, a bioethicist, who especially was the art of living and dying, his most popular class was required for all nursing students and was about dealing with death. A few years passed, and he gained weight, stopped exercising, and went back on insulin. I encouraged him to take care of himself, but he was busy enjoying life and spending time acting and singing in local theater productions. Then he told me that he felt like he did before the previous heart surgery, so we went to the doctor right away. 
His new cardiologist insisted that he had a dangerously blocked artery and had to have surgery immediately. When he had his last surgery, I had the chance to actually view the film of his angiogram, where the doctor pointed out to me that his main problem was a blockage called the widow-maker, a term I'll never forget. My husband asked his new doctor if he could see the angiogram since he didn't get to see it last time. We went into a small dark room with his doctor and another cardiac research physician who was a friend of ours. His new doctor pointed out a blockage, which he called the widow-maker. I had not told my husband that term before. Fortunately, our doctor friend was with us and he pointed out that that blockage had already been bypassed in the last surgery. I was so glad that we caught this issue before he had an inappropriate surgery. He had more testing and discovered that he had a severely prolapsed heart valve. He had surgery for that, along with two more bypasses. He never gained his energy back fully. He did keep performing, and when he could, he kept working on the most recent revision of his ethics textbook, which he'd written over 30 years before. He started having more and more problems, requiring frequent lengthy hospitalizations. For months, I continued to operate my business on my computer from his bedside. I realized that he would not be able to be alone anymore, so I was able to transfer the ownership of my business to a nonprofit organization, and I just stayed home with him or at his hospital bedside. After one hospital stay, I stopped by a medical supply store on our way home from the hospital and asked him to please stay in the car. He didn't, and he immediately fell and broke his hip. The anesthetic for that surgery was overwhelming to his kidneys, so he had to start dialysis immediately. The grieving process can start early, long before death, even though you may not notice. During the two years I stayed home with Jacques, the visitors had dwindled, so even though he was popular and much loved, we had little support. An old friend of mine, Yvonne, who'd lived far away and I hadn't seen in years, happened to come to visit me and ended up staying with me, helping care for him during his last six months. And Abby, my daughter, visited from out of state about once a month, which was a godsend. Six months later, he'd become very weak. He was working on his most recent textbook update, but had great difficulty typing. So every evening, I would go through his manuscript and correct all the typing errors. Finally, he completed the manuscript, and on a beautiful February morning, we submitted it electronically to his publisher and had a wonderful talk with his editor with lots of smiles and laughs and celebration. While he was eating his lunch after this, he asked me if he was going to get better. I couldn't lie to him, so I said, no. He was having great difficulty walking, so I helped him out to the car to go to dialysis. He sat on the edge of the car seat, looked at me and said, oh, shit, and he was gone. I tried to get him fully on the seat so that he wouldn't fall to the ground, but he slipped down the side of the seat wedged between the seat and the dashboard where I couldn't help him. I called 911, but it was too late. We'd been married 22 years. After he died, I was sure I would be alone for the rest of my life, and I was terribly depressed. I went back to work, but I didn't socialize and had an extremely difficult time. A couple of years later, Liz, a good friend, encouraged me to date. I thought she was crazy. But I met a wonderful man, Ron, online. 
We fell in love, got married, and had an idyllic life until he started to have health problems. This time everything was different. We had many friends we saw regularly, and we traveled wherever we could to see the world. We kept coming back to Maui where he'd lived many years ago. He still had friends there who would visit, and I fell in love with the island. As his health deteriorated, we decided to sell our house in California and move to Maui, where he really wanted to spend the rest of his life. At first, he seemed so much better in Maui, but his health deteriorated, requiring many hospital stays. With him, everything was so different. We were so in tune spiritually. He was a religious science minister, and we truly believed in living in the moment. As soon as we moved into our house, we were surrounded by neighbors and new friends, as well as old friends who immediately became our ohana, the Hawaiian word for family. Even though we were fully aware of the direction he was heading, we spent time living in each moment, smiling, laughing, and loving. Though his original health challenge was congestive heart failure, ultimately his kidneys failed too, and he had to go on dialysis. The atmosphere in the dialysis center was oppressive, and when he was offered the opportunity to do in-home peritoneal dialysis, he took it. Unfortunately, he appeared to be allergic to the solution and suffered many awful side effects. The doctors just kept saying he'd get better as it got worse and worse. Ultimately, he ended up in the hospital for a week with endless diarrhea where he lost 35 pounds in five days. At the end of that week, he asked the hospitalist physician who'd been assigned to his care what they were going to do for him. The doctor said he didn't know, that all he could see was that he had diarrhea and that none of the treatments that they'd tried were helping. So my husband asked, what else were they going to do? But the doctor didn't have an answer. My husband said he was going home. The doctor said he'd have to sign out against medical advice and send him home with no medication which he desperately needed. Fortunately, we had a good friend, Robin, who was a hospice nurse, who made all the arrangements for us, found round-the-clock caretakers and a doctor who had come to the house for the prescriptions he needed. Within a couple of days, he knew he wouldn't get better. So he asked me to get him set up with hospice, and we called all of his family and friends. His last week was amazing. His daughter and his friends from the mainland came and stayed with us. His local friends all came. He was able to FaceTime on his phone with every person in his life who couldn't come so he could say goodbye. It was a party all week with people singing and listening to music and barbecuing and sharing so much love. I was with him as he took his last breath. The experience was so different this time. I was surrounded by love, and I knew I would survive this. I dealt with my loss so differently than I had before. I read everything I could find on grieving and started being creative again with my ceramics and sewing. I found people to teach about plant-based cooking. I started writing, mostly journaling, and I found that actually getting things down on paper allowed me to see what I was thinking and experiencing. And this helped me to deal with the experiences. I ultimately started to breathe again. New truths started emerging, and I discovered new layers of my love and experience. 
At the end of my first year after Ron died, people were telling me that they could see how much better I was doing, and they were happy for me. Having taught university writing courses for years, <clears throat> I began teaching classes at my home on writing to find joy, which has helped many people through the process of loss. Ultimately, I opened my heart to start reclaiming joy again, and I realized that I really do feel better, and life is good. We all have a story to share and a voice that is meant to be heard, and we want to share yours. For more information and to get involved, visit storiesofinspiringjoy.com. Stories of Inspiring Joy is a production of Seek the Joy Media and created by Sydney Weiss. You can find all episodes on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you like the show, hit subscribe, leave us a rating and review, and follow along on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We're creating greater connection and community, one powerful story at a time.